if you're on your first attempt at a crux sequence or a boulder or a one pitch sport route, your first go, it's unlikely you're gonna find the best way to do it, the best beta for you. Uh, and it's also, I think quite unlikely that your best beta is the same as your partner's best beta or the beta you saw on a YouTube video. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game. And today, you guys, I'm going to be chatting with an expert coach and also a badass climber in his own right as we look back on season one through the lens of tactics. Where do pros like Jordan Cannon, Alex Magos, Lynn Hill, and Kevin Jorgensen, among others, struggle in their tactics? What have they learned? What common threads can we identify? And how can that info help you and me to level up our own climbing? That's what this expert analysis episode is all about. And here to help us decode the pro's secrets is a real goat coach, Eric Hurst. Eric literally wrote the book on training for climbing, which has numerous foreign translations and sold hundreds of thousands of copies worldwide. In addition to that and seven other books to his name, Eric is a member of the International Rock Climbing Researchers Association and is a published researcher. He's been climbing for 45 years and coaching climbers for more than 30 of those, including his two crusher sons, Cameron and Jonathan, who are climbing high 14s and pushing into 515. Eric's a husband, a father, an entrepreneur, and a weekend warrior, which I personally find inspiring because so many of us aren't able to call climbing our full-time gig, and Eric shows that we can perform at an incredibly high level, even with a busy life. Y'all, it's hard to overstate how much Eric has contributed to the sport of climbing. He was a major developer in the New River Gorge and other areas in the 80s and 90s, having established more than 400 first ascents, including the first ever 513 route at the New. Eric's love of climbing is perhaps only surpassed by his love of helping other climbers of all abilities to level up their training and their performance, which he's now doing with his business Fizzy Vantage, a first-of-its-kind company that offers a complete line of performance nutrition products for climbers. Now, I've had the pleasure of climbing out at the red with Eric on a few occasions, and let me tell you guys, his tactics are impressive, which is what makes me so dang excited to dive into that topic today as we look back on Season 1 through his expert eye. The official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle is, you guessed it, Fizzy Vantage. Founded by legendary climbing coach and expert guest of today's episode, Eric Hurst, Fizzy Vantage is the leader in climbing nutrition, with more than 50 professional climbers now using their products daily to support their training and climbing performance. Who are we talking about? Daniel Woods, Natalia Grossman, Jonathan Segrist, Matt Fultz, Drew Ruana, Brittany Gorris, Jordan Cannon, Paige Clausen, Jimmy Webb, you guys, the list goes on and on. They're using Fizzy Vantage, and so am I. I've been a paying customer for over a year now, and I can say you guys with absolute confidence that I have been able to train harder and perform better thanks to their innovative products that are created from scratch by climbers and for climbers. Swing on over to fizzyvantage.com to check out their line, including my favorites, their revolutionary supercharged collagen, as well as the endurance-boosting Endurex. Fizzy Vantage is now available in Europe from the Epic TV online shop and at fizzyvantage.com. Hit that link in your show notes, you guys, or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off your order at fizzyvantage.com. The Struggle's carbon neutral thanks to a partnership with the Honol Foundation, whose mission is to promote solar energy for a more equitable world. Y'all swing on over to honolfoundation.org and consider setting up a monthly donation, like I did. It feels great, and you know what? While you're there, check out the awesome projects they're supporting around the world. If you can spare a few bucks, 
they make the money go a long way, and I cannot think of a better way to take care of this planet and the people who call it home. And lastly, all the struggles also supported by patrons of the show, which is so awesome. Man, I just, I love the rock climbing community. Thank you guys so much. Listen up for more info at the end of this episode on how you can join our patron community, support the climbers who make this show, and also score some swag. All right, get ready to dial in your tactical advantages in this chat with Eric Hurst. Hey, Eric. Awesome to see you. Welcome to The Struggle. Hey, Ryan. It's great to be here. Well, I'm just so excited. This is going to be such an exciting chat as we look at our season here through the tactical lens and through your expert eye. But before we do that, I just like to go big picture. Let's zoom out. And I'd like to hear from you. What has drawn you to climbing? You've given 45 years of your life to this sport, 30 of them as a coach and now running Fizzy Vantage. And so what is it about climbing and climbers that has invited you to commit so much of your life to supporting what we're doing here? Yeah, well, you know, I started climbing a long time ago, 45 years to be exact. So I was a 13-year-old uh, in the 1970s when there weren't a lot of kid climbers and uh, immediately captivated me. Uh, and I was attracted to it physically and mentally and, you know, the adventure, dealing with adversity, challenging myself. I mean, there was so much that was unique about climbing. And, you know, so like many listeners, it was kind of love at first sight or love at first climb. And it's, you know, been central to my life uh, throughout the different phases of my life. And in the early years, I was like a lot of folks uh, wanted to see how hard I could climb and how quickly I could improve. And, you know, as kind of a math science geek, I, I wanted to explore new things, you know, how to train for climbing, which nobody talked about back in, in that era. And so that got me started on this journey of researching and experimenting and eventually writing and getting involved in the research community. And it's been a really long journey. And I, I, I guess I discovered that I got as much joy out of sharing my knowledge with other climbers and helping improve their experience. I got as much joy out of that as I did actually climbing. Yeah, that's just so awesome to hear. And you know, because you literally wrote the book on climbing, one would think that Eric, you know, maybe you don't struggle a lot in climbing anymore after your 45 years here. So let me ask you the same question that I ask all my guests. And that is, where do you struggle or have you struggled, Eric, through the lens of climbing? You know, there's been struggles along the way, you know, early on struggles, kind of dealing with fear. And you know, back when I started, there was no sport climbing. so. Every day you went out trad climbing or bouldering without pads because bouldering pads didn't mm. exist back then. Uh, you were kind of putting your neck on the line uh, more so than today in the more controlled and you know, safer formats that have uh, developed over the years. And uh, so I've had my different struggles and I can relate to a lot of the struggles that your guests uh, spoke to. Although as an aging climber, you know, the struggles change a little bit. That's kind of an interesting thing about the climbing journey uh, is that the struggles change over time. And so your listeners, personal struggles today uh, will morph and change and evolve and, you know, will be quite different perhaps five or 10 years down uh, the road. 
Oh, that is such great perspective. You know, I think that's the first time I've heard that framed that way on the show this season, essentially that the struggles that we're experiencing today are just a snapshot. They're going to evolve. And that kind of is exciting to me. If, if all the struggles were predictable, then maybe it wouldn't be such an interesting sport. And so let me ask you specifically, Eric, because we're going to be diving into tactics today, where have you or do you struggle, tactically speaking? Yeah, well, let me speak to my current situation, because that's uh, what I spend a lot of time thinking about and dealing with. And so as an aging climber, I'm 58. Uh, the biggest struggles are physical. You know, my body is changing, obviously. Uh, as you get older, especially as you, you know, go through your 40s and 50s, your natural power is on the decline. Uh, recovery is slower than it is when you're younger. Uh, there's an increased risk of injury, you know, connective tissues, joints, and just, you know, wear and tear on your mm -hmm. body. 45 years of climbing is hard on your shoulders. And so while I'm thankful to be quite strong and quite powerful for my age, you know, because I hopefully as a climbing coach know how to do a lot of things right and uh, avoid things that are, are potentially risky. It, it's still, it's a, it's a physical challenge and struggle. So uh, to, speaking of in terms of tactics, when I'm out at the crag, I have to make every go count uh, because, you know, with slowed recovery uh, and not quite the capacity I had in my younger days, you know, I have maybe two goes on a project on a given mm -hmm. day. So I need to make them count. I need to get the perfect warm up before those two goes. So again, I don't get on and get flash pumped uh, or, you know, I need to be mentally prepared so I don't hopefully make a stupid mistake, you know, on point. Sure. Uh, and so it's really demands mastery. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of the neat thing about the climbing journey. It's this never ending pursuit of mastery. And, you know, perfection's not attainable. You know, even if you're Lynn Hill or Alex Megos, perfection isn't possible. So for even those elite climbers, there's still something to be pursued. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just think that's what's so exciting about our sport is, you know, of course, I had conversations with Lynn Hill and Alex Magos, as you just referenced, and they did speak candidly about where they have or currently do struggle. And so the sport itself is so dynamic, there's never reaching the top. But of course, we can learn an incredible amount for those who are nearer to the top than the rest of us are certainly in my case. So I cannot wait to dig in here with you. And before we get specific and look at people like Lynn and Alex, I want to ask about trends, about the big picture, looking through that tactical lens and through your 40 plus years of expertise. When you look back at the season of interviews with 10 of the most accomplished climbers in the game today, were there any common themes? Were there any threads that you saw with regard to tactics? Yeah, well, you know, no surprise to me, there are some commonalities, uh, things that we kind of heard each athlete, each climber uh, intimate in their own way. The big one, the one that really jumped out at me is this uh, search for efficiency, uh, whether it's bouldering, sport climbing, big wall climbing, to perform at a very high level, to push your limits is you know, this quest for efficiency, to get more done with less mm -hmm. energy, uh, to use both strategies and tactics to become more efficient, say on, on a big wall, but also down on a, you know, a move to move basis on a boulder problem or a sport route, how to become 
more movement efficient. Uh, and so there's a lot of different ways that you can pursue higher efficiency. But the bottom line is, if you want to do something harder or higher than you've done before, you want to, of, of course, try to pursue efficiency uh, through various mm -hmm. means. Yeah, that's pretty major. Another thing that really jumped out at me is each of these pros' ability to reframe their struggles, reframe apparent failure, or at least on a given day, a given effort, things didn't work out. You know, Jordan Cannon dealing with getting near the top of the route and then he was in the sun and it just wasn't going to happen. You know, he had spent too much energy. Um, and rather than say that's the end, uh, it was actually just a step in the process. And he, you know, developed some new strategies on when to be on the route and kind of that plan B that Jordan talked yeah. about. And, you know, reframing an, an apparent failure into, hey, it's, it's a learning process. It's a step to eventually sending the route. And, and each of the pros you interviewed really did speak to that in their, their own way. They developed their own personal strategies to overcome the struggle du jour, you might say. Uh, and so I think that speaks to mental toughness, really being a superpower for each of these climbers. And uh, I think that's something that all of us should aspire to be developing, you know, year over year to be a little more mentally tough. And, you know, you develop it in climbing, you can carry it over to your personal life, to your career, to adversity you face off the rock. And that's kind of one of the things I love about climbing is that, you know, the lessons of the steep can be also applied to our everyday lives. Yeah, you know, that mental toughness, that mental agility that you're talking about, an ability to reframe struggle in a sense, is that something that you've noticed as a coach for many years now, working with hundreds, thousands of climbers, including your two sons who are absolute crushers? You know, you, you're no stranger to working with high-performing climbers. Is that mental agility a trait that you find to be very consistent across the board with people who are performing at that elite status? Yeah, Ryan. I mean, in any endeavor, I don't think you can do great things, do hard things without having, uh, or let's say developing this mental agility, what it's going to take, what you're going to have to endure and overcome to eventually reach those big goals. Whether it's Kevin Jurgensen climbing Dawn Wall or you know Alex Johnson sending the swarm after all those years, it was as much a mental battle for these folks, you know, and obviously tactics and the mental aspects are really inseparable. They're they're intimately dovetailed together. Uh, you know, those challenges are as big as the physical challenges. And I think a lot of beginner climbers, you know, perhaps a lot of listeners view climbing more so as like this physical struggle. And yes, it is climbing is physically demanding, some climbs more than others, but all climbs demand that we harness our thoughts, our fears, uh, and develop, you know, tactics and strategy and skills to you know, move more efficiently um, and overcome adversity. And uh, boy, you know, climbing is such a complex thing. It's like I've, I've commented as, you know, playing three-dimensional chess. Uh, you have to just wrap your head around so much. Uh, and 
I guess that's why I'm still doing it 45 years after I started is because there's still more to learn and experience. I love it. Yeah. Well, and I've had the opportunity to climb with you uh, a bit out at the Red on a few occasions, and it's really inspiring, Eric, to see you're now in your late 50s and you're climbing harder than you've ever climbed in your entire life. You just recently did 13C and it's just pretty mind-boggling. Yeah, and and let me add something there, Ryan. I mean, I I really appreciate what you just said. I'm I'm humbled by your words, but you know, I still struggle. I still have off days. I still I get down on myself if I perform poorly on a route or get shut down on a route. Uh, and that happens to even these elite climbers. They have off days. They have down days. You know, they return from a road trip without having sent their project. Uh, and so that's something that I think all the listeners can relate to and kind of take solace in that, you know, that's something they share with the pros. Uh, even though the recreational climbers climbing and performing and training at a totally different level than pros are, we share the same experiences and emotions and and struggles and i i think that's a really neat thing is that you know how you know climbing is this same experience for a beginner as it is for an elite it's just scaled to a much you know a higher order of magnitude with the pros yeah thank you for sharing that and i think that's one of the just one of the, the the parts of this process of doing this show um that's been most fulfilling is just being able to connect with people that I'll never climb at their level, of course, but be able to connect on the same thing, the same struggles, just mm. at, at a different level. So yeah, thank you for touching on that. Let's dive in. I'm excited to um, get some case studies going here from this season of incredible climbers. And I'd love to focus on Emily Harrington first. And, and you touched on this um, a little bit when we were talking about efficiency. And I've got a quote from her from uh, her interview that, that I'm going to play. And then would just like to dive in and, and get your thoughts on this. So take a listen here to Emily. She's talking about going up uh, Golden Gate in a day. The, the struggle comes when you have to climb 2,000 feet of 5.9 and 5.10 and a little bit of 5.11 to get up to that point. And it doesn't really sound like much when you're a 5.14 climber. It's like, oh, well, I can climb 5.10 all day. Actually, you probably can't. It's It's more physical than you think it is. And for me, it was just something that I just started realizing over time, I think, was that I was inefficient. And it would like took people like Alex pointing it out. Climbing El Cap is a lot of moderate climbing. And a lot of people don't realize, but they're not that good at it. Yeah, well, there, there's a lot of wisdom in, in what she says. And I, I think that's part of climbing mastery. It's not just about how hard you climb. But, you know, again, we can distill it down to this word efficiency. And so to climb that big wall, 32 pitches in a day, uh, and to do hard pitches up high late in the mm -hmm. day, you know, both Jordan and Emily, you know, described that beautifully in your interviews, you know, everything that, that comes before it or leading up to those high pitches is a very real factor, even though on paper, the grades aren't that difficult. And, you know, as a coach, I often talk to my athletes about when we're talking about climbing movement and tactics, thinking about lowering the ATP cost. The, you know, that's ATP is the is really the fuel in the muscles. The energy is created by splitting ATP. So 
trying to lower the ATP cost of every movement when you're on a climb. Um, or using a car's analogy, improving the gas mileage. Sure. You know, by making sure your tires are inflated and you're driving um, in fuel efficient ways. Uh, and so that's kind of what Emily's talking about, you know, striving for that on every pitch leading up to the crux pitches higher up so that there's more gas left in the tank to complete the climb. You know, kind of from a training perspective, I think something that the listeners should think about, you know, a lot of climbers are enamored of just constantly pushing their limits, you know, limit bouldering or projecting sport climbs. But there's a lot to be gained by some days going to the gym or going to the boulders or going to the crags and climbing a lot of sub-maximal routes. Mm. First of all, for fun, like a day off from the pressure of, you know, falling or needing to perform because you're climbing submaximally, but also on those days where you're climbing submaximally, not just checking out mentally, but, you know, tuning into the proprioception of doing the crux moves on those easier routes. And rather than powering through the moves just because you can, you know, just because you have power to spare, instead still trying to be maximally, uh, efficient in your movements, right? using, you know, savvy to navigate cruxes rather than just raw power. Uh, and I think that's something that all climbers, myself included, sometimes do. You get on the warm-up route, you know, which is well below your limit, and you just, you know, power and muscle and maybe even climb sloppily through that warm-up route just because you can. And in doing so, you're reinforcing maybe some bad habits and, you know, you're getting used to wasting energy on easy routes because again, you, you can waste the energy on the easier sure. routes. And so that's not a way to pursue mastery, you know, especially if you want to perform at the level that Emily Harrington does. Uh, and so what she did is, you know, she went back and worked on those earlier pitches and really climbed with more intention to conserve energy. And so that's a, maybe a take-home strategy for all of us. Yeah, that really struck me because both Emily as well as Jordan Cannon, when they were working on Golden Gate in a day, really both spoke about how critical it was to find efficiencies on the easier pitches so they had the gas for the crux pitches at the top. Now, it, look, I'm not going to do Golden Gate in a day. I'm not much of a big wall climber myself. I've, I've done a couple of them. But right now in, in this season of my climbing, I'm far more into sport routes. And so is there a way that you could extrapolate what Emily was saying there for those of us who are climbing sport or even boulders? I absolutely think it can be shrunken down into a single pitch um, concept as well. In fact, you know, I think it was Jordan made the analogy of of each pitch of El Cap being kind of like a bolt on a long That's throw right. route. Uh, and so just as you're conserving energy pitch to pitch on your way up El Cap so that you have more left at the end, uh, we can reverse that. And as a sport climber, you know, if we can uh, kind of glide more efficiently up, you know, the intro climbing leading up to the crux, we may have more left in the tank. I mean, just a one simple thing to think about on a sport route is, you know, is there a rest you can, you know, a meaningful rest you can get before you head mm -hmm. into that crux? At the Red River Gorge, sometimes you're looking for a knee bar. Uh, other crags, it just might be a, a, a good handhold or jug you can shake out on, or maybe a little stance that you can get the weight over your feet. Uh, and if you can dwell there for five minutes, 
you might be able to get almost ground fresh, almost as if you're starting from the ground again, even though you're partway up your route and getting ready to head into the crux, that can be a real difference maker. Um, and you know, again, it's another example of how some of these uh, tactics that we're learning from the pros in your uh, interviews uh, are scalable and are modifiable for climbers in different situations. The struggle, these great interviews you've done, there's so much gold to be mined from them. I think especially if you listen to each of them a second time and really, you know, think about what the pros are describing and how it might apply to you, there could be some, you know, real powerful information or clues to taking your climbing to the next level. Yeah, I, of course, I've listened to them all many, many times. And every time, every time <laughs> I do, I, I get something new. So, you know, it's interesting. I'd like to contrast what we were just talking about, which is ultimate efficiency from Emily Harrington on LCAP to planned inefficiency, in a sense, from Kevin Jorgensen, also on LCAP, when he was hitting that stopper crux pitch 15 on the Dawn Wall. Let's hear what Kevin had to say when he just was not able to put that pitch together the way that he had practiced it. On my rest days, I had the, the film guys edit all of my failed attempts up to that point so that I could watch it. And I tried to decipher why my feet were slipping because it was always a foot slip. It wasn't uh, anything else. And then from that, I just devised a new foot sequence. I reverted to something I had tried in the past that had way more foot moves in it than the previous kind of approach I was taking. But I think it did two things. Like one, it did put me in a better position to get my feet where I needed them to be. And two, it changed my body's perception of where it was in the crux. And so again there, Kevin's describing how he intentionally added in more moves. So essentially planned inefficiency in order to try to get through that crux pitch in a different way. So what's your takeaway from that coach? Keep an open mind. I mean, I, I think anybody who has climbed several years or more has been in, in this exact situation where, you know, you're working a boulder or a sport route or maybe a multi-pitch trad route, and you are convinced you've figured out the best way to do a move. And yet you keep falling or struggling. In Kevin's case, it was day after day after day, you know, mm -hmm. which starts to accumulate mentally this weight of the situation. And you need to keep an open mind. When you start to work a route, the typical MO was to try different solutions and different moves and, you know, test things out. And, you know, eventually you'll hopefully find something that works for your body size. And then you become 100% certain that's the way it has to be done on the send go. But the difference is on the send go, uh, you're not climbing it out of a hang or in the boulder context, you're not just doing a few moves, you know, working a crux move. Mm -hmm. You have to string everything together. And so suddenly that 100% for sure way of doing it out of a hang isn't the way you can do it on red point, let's say. And so sometimes you have to circle back to an earlier effort, you know, an earlier way of doing it, different beta, uh, or maybe try to figure out new beta. And again, that speaks to mental toughness. Yeah, he was not gonna let that route go. Uh, as he said, he didn't <laughs> wanna be the person who almost climbed the Dawn Wall. He didn't wanna live with that. And so he, yeah, he found that new way 
And that actually just brings up something else that's been on my mind lately as I've been projecting some limit things out at the red, and that's how much I should trust other people's beta, whether I find it on YouTube or it's my climbing partners, versus how much I should just get on a route and figure out what I feel is right for me. And an example of this would be like my first 12B, which was last year's, this route called Tissue Tiger, as you know, over at left flank. And it's got this really tough crux section. It's a couple bolts. And I could not do it the way all of my friends were doing it or the videos that I saw. I just didn't have the, the crimp strength to bear down on this real thin crimp to get up to this kind of pocketed section. And so I tried it a million times that way and I could not do it. And so I ended up figuring out after just hanging out there for a while, a way to essentially bypass that crimp by grabbing an undercling, getting high feet and doing like this massive kind of dynamic step up move and just skipping the crimp altogether. And I wasted a lot of time trying their beta is what I'm saying. And only in becoming completely shut down did I find this totally new sequence, which I think was far more efficient, at least for me. So how do you look at that, Eric? How do you look at beta that exists, beta that we can find from other people versus beta that we might just want to try to figure out in our own way? Uh, on your first go, it's unlikely, you know, your first attempt at a crux sequence or a boulder or a one-pitch sport route, your first go, it's unlikely you're going to find the best way to do it, the best beta for you. Uh, and it's also, I think quite unlikely that your best beta is the same as your partner's best beta or the beta you saw on a YouTube video. Mm -hmm. So I think part of becoming more expert at climbing is not getting drawn into uh, this belief that you must do it like everybody else or that you must do it like the video gave you. Maybe the holds will be the same, the holds used, but they'll be in a little different order or the body position might be a little different because after all, you know, climbers come in all shapes and sizes and flexibility uh, and you might use the same holds, but in a little different way. Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe there are other holds. I mean, Lynn Hill talked about using unchalked holds because she's short and she needs to you know, use intermediate hands and build feet high. And, you know, by doing that, she's able to navigate what many people might call a reachy sequence or, or a height dependent sequence. Sure. And so, yes, absolutely. Keeping an open mind is, is critical. Is there a way that you recommend we actually can get into that mindset or, or essentially practice climbing in that manner? Maybe a good strategy for folks, if you're going up and, you know, beginning to work a boulder or a, a crux on a route, sport route, is try it three different ways, at least three different ways, before you settle in on saying this is the best way. Mm -hmm. As opposed to just kind of rushing through the crux, you know, you try it one way or maybe you try it two ways and you pick one and say, okay, that's good enough. And and if it's a submaximal route, maybe it is good enough, but it doesn't mean it's the most efficient way that you're going to navigate that crux. And so I would say three is a good number to uh, play around with. Uh, if you're there hanging out, working the crux sequence on a sport route uh, or a boulder, three as a minimum. And, and I, I guess at some point, if you keep failing on a route or struggling on a route, uh, you have to ask yourself, am I being closed-minded about things? Let me bring up uh, Emily Harrington on the monster off with, you know, she had climbed it a couple of times and it was a real struggle for her, uh, especially given her small body size. Uh, and 
I think initially she probably just thought, I just have to find a way to survive and get up this thing, even if it takes two hours. And then suddenly this wild card idea of putting on a bigger shoe over top of her smaller foot. And it was game changing, as she described in her interview with you. Yeah, actually, I love this. Maybe one of my favorite moments from the entire season was when Emily shared this hack that she had. So, yeah, let me play that clip real quick. The monster off with that pitch is 100 feet of off with climbing where you're kind of wedging half your body and trying to ascend. And for so many years, I just thought I was really bad at it. Like every guy I talked to was like, you just have to heel toe and move up the wall. And that's how you do it. And you shouldn't even need a number six, like all this hmm. stuff. But instead of finding an entirely different technique, I just started thinking about what they were doing and what I was doing and how it was different. And it ultimately came down to foot size. Hmm. So in the end, what I did was I made my foot bigger by putting Alex's shoe over my shoe. And then I was able to heel toe hook just like they were doing. But it took a little bit of like outside the box creativity in order to get to that realization. Yeah, coach, I just love that. What a uh, creative solution. There's many examples of this, you know, climbing history of kind of climbers coming up with novel solutions to a problem, you know, that they need to overcome uh, to send the route to climb the big wall. Uh, and, you know, the novel solution for her was putting on another shoe on her foot. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I think we all need to keep an open mind. And even when you're 100% certain you found the best way, maybe you should second guess yourself. I love that. I think that's awesome. You know, it's even something we could do at the gym, right? You go, you go to the Boulder gym and there's a, a V3 that's set. You know, the setters tend to want you to learn a skill and they set it in a certain way. But what a fun way to work the 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 problem solving muscle is to say you know what i'm going to try this boulder problem three different ways yeah absolutely or maybe you know that v3 boulder it's been set to demand that a climber do a dead point or a dynamic move and after sending it that way maybe try to send it again being fully static in the movement which would demand mm -hmm. uh more end range strength, you know, more lock-off strength, perhaps more core strength. And it might be harder than V3 uh, if you come back and try to climb it statically, if it was set, set to be done dynamically. And so, yeah, playing little games like that, you know, if you show up at the gym and there aren't any fresh boulders for you, you've done them all, or at least the ones of your grade level you've done, why not reclimb them as eliminate routes? You know, try to climb that, that V5 that you've done a bunch of times already, uh, Try to do it with, you know, one hand or foothold, quote, off route. Hmm. And suddenly you're going to, you know, make it a, a training route that can uh, help you improve as a climber. So Cool. Cool. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the idea, and I've written about this in my books over the years, of the importance of climbing practice. Uh, not every day at the gym or boulders or crag needs to be a performance day where you're out there, you know, limit bouldering or projecting sport routes uh, and pushing yourself. In every other sport, you know, name a sport, they practice, they have days of practice where it's not about competition, it's not about performance, it's about practice, learning skills, refining skills, you know, developing new tactics and procedures. And I, I think 
a lot of climbers miss out on that, you know, because they do get enamored of this pursuit of the higher grades. Uh, and so that every visit to the gym becomes kind of chasing grades, you know, or they're on the system wall, always trying to climb at their limit. Uh, how about go to the gym and just say, this is a practice session. It's not about sending, it's about uh, refining my craft, developing skills, um, and having fun. You know, Alex Johnson mentioned that one of the key strategies for her was to not spend every climbing day working the project, but instead work the project on day one, then on day two, go climb some easier routes, you know, that you can on-site and flash and, you know, feel good about and remember what success uh, is like and build confidence and have more of a chill day and then take a rest day and then circle back to the project. And that's, you know, that's really a proven strategy. I think pretty much all of these pros at some point discovered that uh, they, you know, can climb better and just, you know, mentally avoid burnout and let the process of sending their project play out more quickly by having some of these practice days, these fun days introduced into their climbing schedule. Yeah, you know, that process mindset, it's just so important. And I'm totally guilty of going to the gym and, and really trying to climb my hardest grade every single time or get out to the red and want to try to push my, my top end grade higher because I only have so many trips a year I can get out there. But when you hear this from the pros, it really does cut through the noise. And you're underscoring it right now by saying, look, not only is it good for our health and good for our training, but it's also it's fun, right? It's fun to top out boulders, whether they're at the gym or outside. It's fun to clip chains, whether they're at the gym or outside. Not every day should be or even can be about performing at our peak. Yeah. And, you know, just following up on that, you know, I think if you only acquire joy from climbing when you send, then I think you're going to reach a dead end, you know, as a climber, it's going to be not a sport for life. Whereas if you truly love climbing, you should love it, you know, win, lose, or hanging from a quick draw, you should love climbing. And uh, so even your days where you send nothing, uh, or those weekends at the crag that you send nothing, hopefully you can find joy and, and some pleasure in it. And, you know, if nothing else, uh, view those uh, difficulties, those adversities, those failures as a tuition that you're paying to learn, you know, uh, hopefully you're learning from those off days or those. Uh, and so kind of like going to school, uh, you're becoming a wiser, uh, more skilled climber from learning, even on those kind of not so fun days. Yeah, really important advice there for us who climb at any level. We can just take that pressure off ourselves, which of course, ultimately, I think makes the sport and the training more fun. So yeah, thanks for that perspective, coach. And I want to continue on this theme here of tactics, looking back at season one and these elite climbers, but I just want to open it up to you now. You've listened to the episodes, you've worked with some of these climbers and are friends with many of them. Which of these struggles and which of these climbers' stories with regard to tactics really stood out for you? I mean, something that really connected with me was when Alex Megos was talking about, you know, working his big projects. It's, it's a process that uh, is very intentional, down to the point that 
he may travel to a crag and do kind of a scouting kind of exploratory mission on the route to suss it out, figure the moves, see what physical attributes are needed. And then he returns home, does a training block with, you know, very route specific exercises. You know, if it's a real fingery route, doing a, a training block that is more finger focused, uh, as opposed to if it's, you know, an endurance route, maybe he's doing a block that has more focus on aerobic endurance or power endurance. And I'm sure maybe even right down to building some boulder problems on the spray wall that simulate a crux sequence on a route. Uh, and then after that training block, returning, you know, to the project and making some meaningful goes at it. Uh, and uh, this isn't a process that Alex invented. Uh, he has really learned how to exploit it, but it's been around for decades, like Adam Andre did in, in uh, doing Silence, the mm -hmm. world's hardest sport climb. Uh, he had to go through that process a, a, a few times. So that really connected with me. Yeah, I, I really do think that's a huge tactical advantage. Um, you know, like take it personally, last fall, I was working on that route mosaic at the Red it's 12C. It's my first 12C I was going for. And there's a really tough crux move in the middle where you're, you have to stand up and into a really high left-hand undercling. And I just kept failing on it over and over again. It's, it was a real burly move for me. It felt awkward. And so I've got like this junky little spray wall in my basement. It's the first time I've ever done it. I don't know why I haven't done it before, but, you know, I set a little simulation for it. And I actually set it a little bit harder than the actual one. I stretched it out a little bit higher and I made the hold a little bit junkier. And I would just practice it while I was doing my spray wall stuff or running laps. And I would just throw that move in every once in a while and just try to stick that move. And when I went back out there and finally got back on the route when the conditions were decent in the fall, it felt easy, which was crazy because it never felt easy. That kind of tactical advantage that, that we can unlock you know, I'm not working on silence, but I, but I feel like that kind of tactic does apply. Like it, it certainly really did help me when I was working on my route. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's a, it's a concept that is scalable. So whether your project is 510A or 515A, uh, you can train in a route specific way. Yeah, absolutely. And what else now, coach, um, as you look back on this season through this tactical lens, what else stood out to you? I really liked uh, in the Alex Honnold interview where you guys got into this discussion of how his approach to free solo climbing or even traditional climbing on gear uh, is significantly different from the approach that he uses when he's sport climbing or probably bouldering as well. Yeah, yeah. Let's listen to what Alex had to say about that. I think that's actually been one of the challenges for me over the years as a climber is that I alternate between styles relatively frequently and, and it's hard to go from absolute control on an expedition or when you're soloing or something like that to then a total riskiness as a sport climber or a boulder again. Risk isn't necessarily the right term. I need a different term for it because most people think of risk as an expedition as being really risky right. when you're like climbing big walls in some remote place. But what I mean is that when you're in those situations, you have to climb with a ton of control and a lot of like a wide margin of safety. Whereas when you're sport climbing, because it's fundamentally safe, you can take a lot of chance with your movements. So yeah, essentially changing his climbing style in a sense, based on what the consequences of a fall might be, right? And, and is this something that, that you've encountered out there, Eric, as well? 
now I don't free solo, but I do trad climb at times. Uh, and so when I go from sport climbing on, you know, climbing on bolts to climbing on gear, I'm kind of doing the same thing Honold is doing in terms of adjusting my approach to things, you know, being more controlled on the trad climbs, uh, being you know, much more thoughtful and intentional in my hand and foot moves and uh, to minimize the chance of falling. Whereas on a sport route, you kind of let it all hang out, especially if you're high up on a sport route and there's nothing but air to hit uh, when you fall, you can just be fully unbridled and let her rip. And uh, so I thought that was a really interesting discussion and kind of hit home with me and perhaps with other climbers listening in who do both traditional and sport climbing you know, they can probably relate to what Alex was talking about here as well. Yeah, and probably nice to know uh, as well that Alex himself struggles with it. You know, one of the things that he noted in that part of our chat was that it's it's a challenge for him to, you know, be out maybe doing big wall season and then come back into like Mount Potosi over in his backyard there and be working on these tough 13, 14, you know, 513, 514 routes where... He does need to kind of switch his styles, his tactics, and be more unbridled and just throw for things, go dynamic, you know, moves that have a high probability of failure. Any tips that you would have for, for us as we're switching between those two things? Yeah, I mean, I think that is a learned skill. You know, for a, a newer climber, maybe only a year or two of experience under their belt, uh, I, I think it's, you know, probably tougher to move back and forth. You know, even on even on sport routes, there can be no fall situations like a slabby sport route, perhaps, or a sport route where, you know, there's a, a chance of falling and hitting a protrusion or a ledge. Learning to recognize those danger situations and adjusting your approach. Uh, I think for newer climbers, that's tough because it's, it's experiential. You know, it's something that you only develop the kind of self-awareness of those situations and the ability to control what mode you're in. That comes with experience. And, you know, that's kind of one of the key points to just climbing as a whole is so many of the things, the mental and tactical uh, strategies and techniques that we talk about, you can't rush the process. The learning comes with experience. And so there's something to be said for having a long-term mindset to your climbing, really treating it as a craft that is you're going to develop over many years and how the more you expose yourself to novel situations and different styles of climbing, the more growth occurs uh, and, you know, the broader your experience. Uh, and the opposite of that, of course, would be to have a very narrow experience. Like if all you do is go bouldering or all you do is go gym climbing or all you do is specialize in one type of outdoor climbing, that's fine. You will get very competent at that one style of climbing. But climbing has many disciplines and many different styles and even you know, different rock types demand different skill sets. Mm -hmm. And so one thing as a coach that I communicate, you know, more so to younger climbers or newer climbers, but I remind myself of it is to diversify and, you know, don't shy away from new experiences and new challenges. And although it might feel, make you feel like a newbie again, if you are, are 
going to try a new discipline or a new style of climbing, uh, that's okay. The, the newer climber has to realize it's a long journey. And in climbing, there's really no shortcuts. It's not one of those sports. Yeah, thank you for bringing that perspective, Eric. I think that's super valuable for all of us, climbers of any age and any skill level, to really get comfortable with the uncomfortable, not always just play to our strengths. And, and that brings to mind my conversation with Emily Harrington in episode one, where she was talking about how she seeks out sometimes these parkour style boulder problems at the gym, because in her words, she sucks at them and she kind of likes that she does. And she feels like going at things that, that she's bad at or that she perceives that she's bad at really makes her a stronger climber. And I, I think that also plays into just her resilience, her mental resilience. So let's hear what she had to say about that specifically. I think I've just gotten really good at being bad at things and knowing that that it doesn't necessarily define me as a climber because I know what I'm actually, I also know what I'm good at. And I know that working on the things that I'm bad at will make me better at the things that I'm good at. I just love that. I think it's easier said than done. Honestly, I, I did that interview with Emily. We had that conversation and yet still I go to the gym and typically target problems that kind of play to my strengths. It's got to be something that's active, but I am going to actively continue to do that because you said so and Emily Harrington said so, and that is good enough for me. So, you know, thank you. Thank you so much, Eric, for looking back like we have on those 10 interviews, I now want to shift our sights forward to application and how we can take what we've learned from this season, from these elite climbers, and apply them directly to our own climbing. I listened to these interviews uh, a few times and really tried to identify some of the, the, the key points or those threads that you mentioned earlier that, that connect a lot of these pros' uh, struggles and successes together, you know, the kind of those common traits. And I actually came up with five things we can learn from the pros uh, and that we can perhaps each uh, apply to our own struggles, you know, in our own way. And some of these we've touched on already, but let me just kind of run down a, a brief bullet point list, if that's okay. Absolutely. You know, the first thing, I guess, kind of at the top of the list is to realize that everyone has struggles. You know, even these top-notch pros struggle. Uh, and yeah, I, I think it was Alex Megos pointed out that, you know, these pros tend to post on their send days, but not on their struggle days. Uh, and so every day or every Instagram post kind of seems to communicate, you know, how terrific things are going and how joyous they are in the send. And, and that's great. That's, that's something we want to share and yet we can all gain inspiration from. But what isn't often shared is all the hard work that went into it and all the failures that uh, accumulated or, let's say, contributed to the success that uh, we see that, you know, the media picks up on. Uh, and so, number one, we all have struggles, of course. Uh, number two, and I mentioned this earlier, is each of these pros in their own way uh, demonstrates mental agility. That's like core to their being is their ability to adapt to a route, to adapt their tactics, their mindset, you know, their strategies. And so that's an important concept for each of us to embrace is to not lock in on sequences, not lock in on a training program, heck, not lock in on a single climbing partner, you know, to become more skilled, to be uh, always learning new things, to 
learn to think out of the box. You have to resist getting stuck into one MO, falling off that boulder or that route because you're attempting it the exact same way mm -hmm. is, you know, try some other things out uh, and make a game out of it uh, and realize that, you know, you're not going to win every game. Uh, number three is that each of these pros has learned to trust the process that, you know, to do a big climb. And I don't mean necessarily big as in tall, you know, something that in their mind is this ultimate goal, achieving the next grade uh, or sending the, the V impossible boulder problem you know, or climbing the next level or free soloing El Cap, trusting this process you know, based on past experience, you know, knowing that, uh, again, if you can stay mentally fresh and keep adjusting your approach and experimenting and learning from every day, uh, that just maybe you can wear down that route uh, before it wears you down. Uh, number four, and we alluded to this briefly earlier, is for big projects, as Alex Megos mentioned, do some route-specific training. Scout the route, identify what physical attributes you need, what skills you need, maybe even some of the individual moves that you'll need to do. Go to the gym, build a simulator, build a training program that's route-specific, you know, focus on that for a few weeks, and then return, and perhaps you'll send the project. Uh, and then number five, and this we didn't touch on, but I think it's a wild card. Each of these pros, as illustrated in your interviews, had a support team. They had other people helping them on their journey. You know, Emily and Jordan talked about working with each other and also having partners who would go up there and be kind of belay slaves on the wall so they could do Golden Gate in a day. Right. And how about Justin Salas? He's a blind climber. He boulders really hard. And he depends on, you know, because he's climbing with very little vision at all. Uh, he depends on spotters, not just to help cushion his falls, but literally visual spotters who help describe to him where to reach, where to feel for the hold. And so Justin couldn't climb the way he does without having that support team behind him. And I think every one of these pros, whether it's their parents, or their partners, uh, or people that join them for the journey up the big wall, all of them have a support system. And I think that's something, you know, to perform at a high level, uh, I think it's perhaps essential. And even for newer climbers, maybe your support team is the people you boulder with at the gym, the people you train with at the gym. Now think about this, Ryan. I'm, I'm fond of saying that you're, you become kind of the sum of the five people you hang out with most often. Uh, and so applied to climbing, you know, the, the five people you go cragging with or bouldering with or go to the gym with and train with uh, contribute, perhaps unknowingly, to what you will become. And so that speaks to the importance of team and community and how we can all support each other in the struggle. Yeah, I really love that notion there. That's really cool. As, as you were saying that, I'm thinking about, you know, the people that I climb with most often and how they are able to push me and support me and whether I'm struggling with a fear of falling like I did when I initially came out to the red or now like getting super serious about 
wanting to achieve, to, to progress through the sport and supporting me in those efforts. It's just so critical. It's critical to have a great group around you. Thanks for highlighting that. That's, that's something that I don't know if anybody brought up this entire season, so I'm glad you did. So now, Eric, I'd just like to pull back here beyond rock climbing specifically and tactics and just about what brings you purpose, what you're passionate about beyond your own personal climbing. You've been in the sport for, as you say, 45 years. You've contributed in huge ways. What are you passionate about now and what are you working on? Well, Ryan, I guess uh, as I became an adult climber uh, and kind of more thoughtful about the sport that I'm a member of, this global community of climbers, uh, I've wanted to have an impact. And so in the early days, I had an impact by sharing training tips at the crag. Uh, I wrote, you know, the, some of the first training articles ever published in climbing magazines anywhere in the world. I wrote back in the 1980s and, uh, and then 30 years ago, I wrote my first training book. And, you know, since then I've, you know, contributed a lot of material uh, to kind of the libraries of climbers. And uh, it, it's something that I guess I never set out to do, but I relish and really enjoy is, you know, having an impact, you know, knowing my, my books are in the hands of climbers in over 50 countries and I can travel virtually anywhere and run into people that have read my books, heard my voice, seen my videos. Uh, and that makes me feel good because I know that I've shared my wisdom, my experiences and helped them enjoy climbing and hopefully progress as a climber. And so in recent years, uh, and it's kind of a long story I won't get into, but uh, about five years ago, I started you know, researching climbing specific nutrition and none existed. It's not easy to eat the perfect diet all the time. It's, you know, to get your required amount of protein to, you know, support recovery and strength gains. There is potentially a need for some folks to consume some supplemental protein or maybe other supplements that help fill some voids, you know, nutritional voids in their diet. Uh, and so to train your hardest and recover and uh, avoid injury and get stronger and, you know, be healthy and have a robust body to attack those projects, you know, nutrition and rest and recovery are just as important as what you do in the gym. And, and so long story short, you know, I, I'm a research junkie and I identified a few things that climbers could do to support their training, support their climbing. And, you know, both when they're in training mode and both when they're in performance mode. And so I launched PhysiVantage almost four years ago, and we've grown rapidly. We started with two products. We now have eight products. Uh, we have a ninth product coming out this fall. And so it's really exciting to see the company taking off. And, you know, I use each of the products and I, I know that they are valid and they work. I wouldn't develop a product that, that didn't work. And again, while I'm not saying that climbers need this stuff, perhaps certain individuals uh, may be able to support their nutrition and their training and climbing efforts uh, with PhysiVantage, as you've discovered yourself. Well, I can't say enough about it. I, I think the proof is in the pudding. It's sometimes quite literally, I, I literally will put some of the supercharged collagen in pudding. <laughs> and yeah, you know how, how just incredibly fulfilling it must be for you to take all of what you've learned in this sport and in the industry and then weave it into this company and these products that are helping climbers all over the world to level up to stay healthy train harder and send i think it's rad you know uh, i'm a huge fan of the company long before 
you came aboard as a sponsor of this podcast, I was using Fizzy Vantage. So thank you for continuing to support the community in the ways that you are, Coach. Absolutely, Ryan. And I want to congratulate you on a terrific season one of The Struggle. And I can't wait to see what season two brings. And that wraps up our chat with the GOAT coach, Eric Hurst. What'd you guys think of the analysis? Do you have any questions? Let us know. You can find us on Instagram at Eric underscore Hurst, at Ryan Devlin Outside, and at The Struggle Climbing Show. So my big takeaways from this look back on season one through the lens of tactics are that proper tactics can be the secret to performing at our best. Whether it's finding efficiencies on the easier sections of climbs or looking at crux sections with a totally fresh eye so that we don't get stuck in a bad sequence. You know, Coach Hurst makes it clear that a huge part of tactics is having this resilient mindset in order to maximize how we employ our training and our technique. You know, I also really like what he said about the importance of community, that training and climbing with the right people can make all the difference. Big shout out to Fizzy Vantage for being the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. I hope you all enjoyed this chat with its founder and are inspired to support his amazing company as you level up your climbing, which I know you want to do. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off at fizzyvantage.com. And lastly, y'all, if you appreciate the content we're putting out here, please consider supporting as a patron. We're lining up ad-free episodes, patron-only content, and other cool perks like limited edition swag, all of which you can get for the price of a fancy cup of coffee each month. And believe me, we need that caffeine. Guys, I am uh, currently recording this from my podcast closet slash utility room at midnight as my family sleeps. And I just know that I'm going to need a jolt of caffeine at 6 a.m. when it is time to wake up and do a little training before the kids get going. So maybe a little TMI there, but if you value what we're doing here, and not just me, but also the hardworking climbers who also work on this show, it would be awesome to have you join the Struggle Patron community. So pop on over to patreon.com slash the Struggle Climbing Show to check it all out. Thank you so, so much. I'm your host, Ryan Devlin, and this show was produced by myself and Mary Mathis with support from Emily Holland. All right, let's climb hard and do good things in the world.